0: I'm so glad to be back with you in our mini-series, walking through the Nicene Creed, really teaching us about the creeds and where they came from. This week, we're talking about the context that came from the Council of Nicaea. Council, big group gathering. Nicaea, we're in Asia Minor, and the time is 325 AD. We have 300 bishops and religious leaders who have come together. They're all in a room, and they have days and days of long, exhaustive conversations. What are they talking about? They're going through bit by bit, talking about the importance of the essentials of the faith, of this Christian faith that has been handed down to them that they're trying to make sense of. They are trying to lay down the floor, if you will, the foundation for Christians to come in generations and generations. And has it worked? Yes, we still say the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, so many of these professions of faith that were drafted at those councils. So I wanna paint a picture for you here. We have 300 people. Constantine is the emperor at the time and he is organizing this council. There is someone named Arius and Arius has an idea and a claim that Jesus is not actually God. Jesus is just another human like everyone else. Is that the Christian faith? No way. That's not what ended up standing the test of time. That's not what ended up being proclaimed as true. So as they all got together, there was a need for a statement to be drafted, to reject Arius, to reject the heresy. That's kind of like the wrong teaching, to reject the wrong teaching that Jesus isn't God or that Jesus is born of a man and a woman, etc. cetera. So what did they do? They drafted up a document, they passed it around, and guess what? Everyone there signed it except two bishops, and those two bishops were then exiled. So you can tell the overwhelming majority of this orthodoxy Orthodoxy means right doctrine, right thoughts. Orthopraxy is right practice. It's that decision that Jesus is God and we have to stand by that no matter what. That is essential. That's what came out of the Council of Nicaea. That's just a brief tidbit about what is yet to come when we keep learning about this Nicene Creed and what it means for us today.
1: Today, we're gonna to talk about Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Uh, but I want to frame why the nature of who Jesus is matters for that conversation, and it's about trust. You ought to trust your shepherd, right? Particularly in the way they did it in the Middle East. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. But in order to trust Jesus, you've got to understand who he is and why it matters, say, that we claim that he was fully human and fully God. So, in the first century, this wasn't a massive debate. At least there's no real record of it being a debate of the nature of Jesus. The early Christians actually just proclaimed it. He was God and he was human. He actually died and he was before all things. You can read it in John one. You can read it in Paul's letter and uh, in, in Paul's letters. You can read it in the way in which they actually describe Christianity in the first century. But when you get away from the people who actually knew Jesus and you get to, say, the third century, a couple hundred years later, you start to get two different frameworks that are outside of the center of who Christians have claimed Jesus to be. So imagine it like you've got a big, broad road of orthodoxy, of right thinking. And that broad road has two different possibilities to it connected to Jesus that actually take you off the road. Imagine a road ditches on both sides. On one side, you have the group of people who claim that like Arius, Jesus was actually not God. He was just a human. At the council, there are only two of them. Like this is not as big of a debate in in the larger group Uh, As much as it was just solidifying, actually, those two people, this small set is outside of what Christians have always believed. The vote was 298 to 2. So it's not like it was a 51-49 decision on whether Jesus was God. So they claim that Jesus was actually just human. On the other side, there's a group. If you want to Wikipedia they're like Docetists or Gnostics ended up framing some element where Jesus was actually just a ghost. We're going to call it Ghost Jesus. You've got Human Jesus or Ghost Jesus, where Jesus was never actually human. He was actually just God and never did human things. So when Peter, James, John and the rest were eating fish with Jesus, he was just pretending to eat fish. Now, you can see why this didn't actually make sense to the first century, right? Like to the people who actually knew Jesus, they're like, dude, that's faking a lot of fish eating. I'm just saying, like, it's faking a lot of drinking, a lot of fish, a lot of bread. It's a whole thing, right? Like, Jesus was with them. It also, by the way, makes a difference that when Jesus is on the cross, if you believe in the ghost Jesus theory, he was just faking it. Like, ow, ow, that really hurts me, right? Like, that's kind of how they frame Jesus. He didn't really feel the pain. He didn't really endure it. Now, this has everything to do with our trust of Jesus. Why? Because if you believe that he was only human, what power does he actually have to save? If he was only human, like, why would we follow him? He's just like any other teacher that existed in the world. However, If he was only God and not human, and he was faking it, then he didn't really die. And if he didn't really die, then was he really raised or was it all a fake? I mean, if he really died, if 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 he did not die and he did not rise from the dead, then what do we celebrate on Easter? Why do we have hope? The early Christians put it this way, and this is from a second century bishop, and it's in a double negative, so English teachers apologize. But that's how they did it. That which Christ did not assume, he did not redeem. To put it another way, in order for us humans to be redeemed and restored, a human had to do it. He entered into human flesh so that we would know our brokenness. I think it comes down to trust. Because when Jesus came to earth and said, I will die for you, he wasn't pretending. When he says, as we'll read later in John, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, it wasn't a joke, it wasn't a show, it was that God entered into our brokenness so that we would have a shepherd who knows how broken we truly are. And so we come to the concept of a good shepherd and we get to this element of needing Jesus to frame who we actually Um, who he is and why he entered human flesh with us. Luke 15. So he told them this parable. Which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Jesus is saying here, I'm the good shepherd who came to you because you were lost. Now, here's one of the weirdest, weirdest things that I think about people misinterpreting the passages of Scripture. Who's the 99 and who's the one? Right? I think this is actually one of the more interesting framings that Jesus has, because he often has this issue, right? You have the 99 righteous who need no repentance and the one sinner who's broken and gone off. Or you have it where he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, I'm a great physician. And, uh, and he says, the, great, the physicians, they don't come for the healthy, they come for the sick. Now, let me ask you the question. Jesus is having this conversation with the Pharisees. Are the Pharisees sick or are they healthy? They're sick. When we look at the 99 and the one, are you the 99 and those other unrepentant sinners, those are the, those are the one? I uh, See, I don't think so. I think the trick about Jesus is that in these parables, we're the one, <laughs> right? Like we're the one that Jesus came for. Because I, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm not perfect. When I think I'm one of the 99, it's proof that I'm actually the one. When I think that I'm actually good, it actually is pretty good evidence that I actually need to humble myself and say, okay, Jesus, it isn't about me. Thank you for coming and saving me. You see, we are much more like, well, this sheep that Jimmy found on YouTube. Check it out. and they're thinking, I'm free, I'm free of this, I'm free of that, I'm now good, that's the moment you jump back in the ditch, isn't it? Like, this is who we are as humans. People for whom we get rescued and immediately go, you know what I like, that ditch looks good. This is the nature of humans, is it not? This is the nature of us. So Robert Hasley, who uh, if you don't know this, you can't really tell the story of St. Andrew without starting with the naming of the church. If you're new here, this is, uh, this is the first time you'll hear this of many. If you've been here a while, you know this story, but I'm going to say it. When Robert started the church, he wanted to name it Good Shepherd. He wanted to name it Good Shepherd. And it, what's really funny is uh, that no one agreed with that assessment like no one wanted this to be Good Shepherd Methodist Church right like it just wasn't a thing and so they ended up like going anyone else have any ideas and they said we want something with gravitas and so they went to Saint Andrew Uh, and so that's truly the story of why we're named Saint Andrew and why there's a nod to a Good Shepherd Meditation Garden right out back is that's literally the mocking see you wanted it now you can have a little garden how cute that's literally how that got played out right next to the Hasley Chapel it's literally perfect but the reason I think Robert wanted that is because that was his view of how a church ought to be led. Is because a church ought to be led as one who cares for the sheep and the flock, as one who knows who they are and what that looks like, and as someone who cares deeply for the pastoring of the congregation. That we understand, actually, that we are all people who are in need of the love and the grace and the unconditional grace of God because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are broken, all of us are messed up and we are kidding ourselves every time we imagine we are one of the 99. That God has actually come to earth for my sake and yours. Robert liked to tell this story about being a pastor here. He said, you know, when there's a parable about an old retired man, uh, who was a retired pastor, who spent three decades in ministry, and he was asked, what was your favorite decade of ministry? And he started out, and he says, well, it wasn't my first decade of ministry, because my first decade, I imagined that I was up on a cliff, and the congregation was down below in the water, and I was yelling at them how to get out of the water, and they weren't paying attention. And I just hated it, because I just, it didn't work, it was lonely, it was horrible. But it wouldn't be the second decade of ministry because in the second decade of ministry, I thought about it and I thought that I was on the bank of the river and everyone else was swimming and I was trying to get them out of the water, onto the bank, but it was a muddy bank and they just kept falling back in the water and I'd save one and they'd jump back in the water, literally just like that sheep we just saw. He goes, it was exhausting? And he goes, and then I realized in the third decade of ministry, that was my favorite. And it was my favorite because I realized that I wasn't up on high on a cliff or even on the riverbank. I was one of the people swimming with them, just trying to hear the voice of Jesus, trying to figure out with them which way we go. Sorry. Um, It's really a remarkable thing to follow someone who built a place like this, who had that level of humility and drove himself that way. And it's because he never imagined he was better than anybody. And so it's why when I was in the middle of my divorce 13 years ago, when I had to call him to tell him I was gonna come to be a pastor at St. Andrew, I didn't know that he'd experienced the same thing. And I call him up out of the blue and I just have to tell him, hey, I, I, I don't have to tell you. I, I failed. I failed. And he said, that's okay. It happens. And we're going to love you through it. It doesn't change a bit how much we want you. I'll tell you what, that's a level of humility I did not expect. A level of welcome I did not expect. And it drives, frankly, who we believe we are understanding that none of us are perfect, that none of us are ideal, and yet Jesus is actually the one who provides us the hope, that my job is not to pretend that I am better, my job is to simply shepherd people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the good shepherd, not me. He's the one who died for us. It is my job simply to point to the one who is the good shepherd, who can provide the kind of grace and hope and love who died for us while we were yet sinners. It's why we have in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Or in John 10, when he leverages this framework of the Lord being the shepherd, where he is the Lord, he says in John 10, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. That's an important bit. We'll come back to that. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all out all of his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling him. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. For the sheep. This framing of Jesus as the good shepherd, who the sheep know his voice, requires you to understand a little bit about shepherding. Now, I must admit, my experience personally with shepherding is zero. However, I'm told by people who know better than me that there are two different ways to be a shepherd. Uh, And this is really kind of a, a Middle Eastern versus maybe Western kind of framework. In the Uh, Western framework of sheep herding, uh, you typically do it from behind. So you drive the sheep forward, right? So imagine you've got sheep and they can nip at, uh, there's dogs, who nip at the sheep in order to keep them corralled, right? You've got to drive them forward, the shepherd's behind, calling the dogs to ensure that they kind of stay in the same little space and area, right? You can actually imagine that's how a lot of churches navigate church discipline, right? We're just going to nip at you a little bit until you actually do what we want you to do, right? Like there's actually that framework of how a church could operate. is kind of shepherding where you actually drive from behind and you kind of nip and you push and you do all that kind of stuff. However, that's not the kind of shepherding that exists in the Middle East or particularly in Jesus's day. In Jesus's day, it was not a driving from behind, but rather a calling from up front where the shepherd gets to know the sheep so well that they know his voice. And so the shepherd is walking and starts calling the sheep and they follow. Now I have to tell you, it takes a lot more effort for the sheep, for you to spend enough time with the sheep for them to actually know your voice, doesn't it? Just imagine how long it takes for people to actually hear a voice, to understand that piece. I mean, I've been married eight and a half years. I think I'm just finally figuring out my wife's voice. Like I talked to someone who'd been married like 30 years or 40 years and they're like, it took me a good decade. Like it took me a good decade to actually have us speak and actually understand each other, right? Like it's not simple. Like I tell people when they get like start to get married, I'm like, y'all don't know each other yet. You think you do, you've been dating a PR department, okay? You have no idea how long it takes to actually get to know each other's true voice. Now, here's the question. If our goal is to know the shepherd's voice and to follow the shepherd, how are we doing on that? Here's another way to frame it. Think about the voices you listen to in your life. How high is Jesus on that list? It takes a long time to hear someone's voice. How high is Jesus? You're clearly here now, here, hoping to hear a word from the Lord through scripture and through spoken word and through song. How about Monday, Tuesday? It comes from reading scripture, from prayer with fellow Christians. It comes from doing this thing together with one another in such a way that we together hear the word of God and that we follow the voice of the one who gave his life for his sheep. That doesn't happen in small doses. We talk a lot about this in terms of parenting. Uh, so uh, a couple years ago, our children's ministry was talking about kind of not wasting your time. So our curriculum, there's a framework connected to it where it says it's just a phase, like your kids are going through a phase. And often that gets talked about in terms of it's okay, they won't be jerks forever. That's literally the way that gets done. But that's not the way that this curriculum talks about It's actually the opposite. It's literally, it's just a phase. Don't miss it. I was talking to some friends in the back earlier who were talking about how they've been going back and watching videos of their kids when they were about five and 10 years ago. And his recommendation to me was take more video. You're gonna want more video of your kids when they are younger. So take more video because that's actually what we wanna watch right now. It's just a phase. Don't miss it. In fact, Kim and one of her lessons back then was actually had a marble jar thing where you, ha- you find a jar and you put as many marbles in it as your kids have left under your household before they leave. The whole point of this is your kids need to know your voice, right, before they go off to college and hear other voices. Don't waste the weeks you have, because when you realize only 52 weeks in a year and that you only have your kids for 18 years and by the time that they get to a place where you can start talking about difficult things like faith, you don't have that many weeks left. Now I didn't do this in my household because I think taking out a marble would traumatize my wife every week of, oh my goodness, my five-year-old's about to go off to college. But to a large extent, what I hear from people who've sent their kids off to college, they are about to go off to college. Happens like that. So how do you think about it? But here's my question. It's not just about your kids hearing your voice. The question is, does your voice match Jesus's voice? Right? In your parenting, are you exhibiting love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? I'm here to tell you, mine does not always do that. And I have to repent even to my own children to say, I'm sorry. I didn't quite do that right. Can we start over? How about a fresh start? They always like the fresh start work. But one day I'm gonna connect for them that the reason why we give each other fresh starts is because Jesus gave us fresh starts. One day I'm gonna talk about how they're gonna to go to children's ministry and VBS and Camp Impact and Mission Trip because I want them to get weeks and weeks and weeks of discipleship from people like you, faithful people who know the voice of God and can share it with the children. You see, this is the glory of, of, of church is that we are actually called by the shepherd to learn his voice so that we can be that for others because we are not meant to do this thing alone, and I need more help. You see, one of the major things that's happened over the last decade is that church attendance has plummeted as loneliness has increased. St. Andrew goes against that trend. But in large part, because the leadership of of our lay leaders, Robert Hasley and the rest of the staff going, okay, how do we actually do this? We launched a second act ministry for retired people nearing retirement, already retired. And it's just a remarkable group. And I underestimated how needed it was. But it was directly on this topic. There's actually an Atlantic article this week that was talking about the longest study that existed in the history of, of, of the U.S., kind of a longitudinal study looking at families, at success rates, at what passes down from generation to generation. They're now in their third and fourth generation of following these families. And one of the things they've discovered is how rarely we do the things we say we wish to do, right? So I think, you know, you're in church today, there might be one or two of you going, I don't want to follow Jesus. Most people in this room are at least curious or are certain they want to follow Jesus. But it's like they talked to a guy in this program and they said, okay, who do you love most? And he goes, well, my, my kids. When was the last time you saw him? Well, it's been three or four years. What about your best friend? They go, well, we see each other once or twice, maybe three or four times a year. So what do you do most of the time? You look at time spent with friends and family that they say they love most and it's here. And you think about the voices they're hearing from ones they love the most versus social media or television or cable news. I'm here to tell you cable news, this is the way of the thief and the robber. They come to steal and kill and destroy. I'm not saying everybody, I'm just saying like the, the way in which we navigate this in our life. Who are you listening to? Are you listening to the people that are trying to divide the people, or Jesus who gave his life for his sheep? This matters, y'all. What voices are you listening to because what voices then do you pass on to your family, your kids, your friends, your friends' kids? What kind of community happens? That Atlantic article said something that I found utterly fascinating, which was the number one risk issue for older adults for death is not obesity, but loneliness. You have a 26% chance of dying increased if you are lonely every single year in your older adult years. It's why we're actually crafting the second act ministry is this is about life. When Jesus says, I've come so you may have life and have it to the full, it's because what Jesus set up through his love and the church where we are sheep gathered together going, okay, God, what do you want with me? That is actually the secret sauce. You look at the wider world, how bad things are and how much divisiveness and anger and hatred and frustration exists. And you sit here and you look at the secret of the church of, Okay, you you got a God who loves you and died for you. You've got a community who's supposed to be gathered around welcoming people who are broken into a place where they can find home. This is actually what the whole thing's about. So my question goes back to, who do you listen to? This week, who are you gonna listen to this week? If you're into metrics, track how much you pay attention to outside voices that are not trying to point you to Christ or to good things in the world versus the ones that do. If you haven't talked to your kids in a long time, I recommend you do that. If you haven't talked to your parents or grandparents in a long time, I recommend you do that. Because the Good Shepherd has shown us how to live with one another so that we might have life and have it to the full. Joy is a gift of the Holy Spirit. When we do what God told us to do, when we listen to the voice of the shepherd who gave his life for the sheep, let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your son Jesus Christ and for the good shepherd who came down. God, we confess that other voices have been too loud in our lives and we have not paid close enough attention to you. God, we confess that our actions do not reflect your word, but the word of the world. Forgive us, we pray. Free us so that we can joyfully obey you and hear your word so that we can invest our time and our effort into others and into you in a way where your word becomes alive in this place and in our lives. Amen.